to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 65, Art and Film with Dr. Cutter Calloway. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're discussing art and film with Dr. Cutter Calloway, who is Associate Professor of Theology and Culture and the co-director of Real Spirituality at Fuller Seminary. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Brandon Hurlbert, Chris Song, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. On this episode with Dr. Cutter Calloway, we're going to be talking about the Best Picture nominees of 2021, which will be awarded at the 93rd Academy Awards Ceremony. Naturally, given that we are speaking about these films quite openly, we need to give a spoiler alert up front. But we talked about a number of other things. What stood out to the two of you about this conversation that we had with Dr. Calloway? I think one of the the things that sticks out to me from that conversation we just had was Cutter's quote of, art traffics in empathy. And I, I just thought that is an amazing way to put it. I'm just thinking about film, thinking about art and how, if it doesn't encourage us to change, if it doesn't encourage us to identify with somebody other than ourselves, even if it's just for, you know, the hour and a half, two hours that the film is, um, I think we're missing out on what film is trying to do and and how we can, as Christians, respond to it. So I really appreciated what uh, Cutter was saying. You know, going along with the idea of empathy, um, you know, Cutter's talking about worlds that movies can create and that we have the choice to inhabit. And that's, um, that's true of almost, yeah, I think it's, I I think it's true of any movie. Um, I think it's particularly and poignantly true of the movies that are up for, for Best Picture this year. We, we have a world that we are asked to be a part of and to, to step inside, sometimes quite, quite physically and in, an, in a very embodied way, step inside, like in movies like Sound of Metal or The Father, um, to, to really see what uh, hearing loss might be like, or what dementia might be like, not just uh, as a third person, but as as a first person subjective eye. And uh, so some of these movies are are doing that really well. Um, other movies are creating a horizon of the world and asking us <clears throat> to to maybe explore with them, you know, what we think, how how would we respond to particular picture of the world or the way the world might be set up and do we see the world the same way and uh so this idea of movies creating worlds i think is is a really important one it's a good exercise as a christian um the bible creates a world um quite literally and um we're we're constantly invited to inhabit it and to be a part of it What I love about ending our series on art and culture with a discussion on film is that if you think about it, film is kind of like the most collaborative art project, right? In order for a film to be a best picture, it's really got to sort of fire on all cylinders, right? The acting's got to be there, the directing, the cinematography, the writing, the the music, the score, the sound design. I mean, everything's got to be good. And given that collaborative nature, what, what I find so interesting about this conversation about empathy and this kind of 
ethic of viewership that Dr. Calloway talks about is our broadens this notion that film is a collaborative uh, project to include us as the viewer and, and invites us to kind of live out that empathy that we have learned in the process of watching a film in the worlds that we inhabit as well. And so with that, here is our conversation with Dr. Calloway. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Calloway. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's uh, fun to talk about films with people that care about movies. So before we get into the best pictures, how, how about we begin by just sort of asking why should Christians be interested in these films at all? You know, I think for many, there's kind of this idea that, you know, film is perhaps just mindless entertainment, right? It's nothing to really be terribly concerned with, to dig deeply into. One of the things that I remember growing up is, is how films were, were treated in such a reductionistic way. For example, whenever I wanted to go see a film, right? One of my friend's parents would always have to consult the, the Plugged In magazine, right? And, and what, you, what you find in, in Plugged In is this is kind of weird, reductive itemization of all of the violent content, the language, you know, the nudity, right? It's like, you know, in this film, there are three decapitations, right? And, you know, X number of, of swear words. And it's just like this really weird uh, sort of approach to film. Right. That that sort of flattens it all out. I'm wondering if you could sort of uh, chart a, a better way forward for us for, for how we ought to think about films and not reducing it to this kind of content. Sure. Um, I mean, at the core of it, um, my approach to just culture in general, uh, art, let's say the arts, um, and we would include cinema in that. And there's a range, right? Not all movies maybe qualify as like art. Um, they are, but, you know, uh, some of them are kind of silly and really are mindless. Right. Uh, so it would be uh, an analogous to to a People magazine or whatever, like an in-flight magazine where you go, you consume it, you don't think about it ever again. Um, and and actually, I think there's a sense in which some of that's OK. Like there's sometimes Christians uh, put a lot of burden on themselves that everything we do has to be very sober and serious. Um, and there's actually a um, my PhD mentor, and then now it's kind of recurring in the in the field of of sports and athletics. But this sort of notion of a theology of play um, is something that I think we need to to reclaim and go. There's there's actually a great deal of good, just mental health outcomes, but then also a, a, a theology of going. Um, it's good for us to delight in the things that God has made and that we make, um, and that's fine. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Now. If it's like borders on like crass and, you know, whatever, then maybe we can talk about that. But that's now moving more into that sort of content question that you that raised. And a lot of times I and the way I teach in class and talk about it is uh, one of the reasons we might uh, engage these films, watch these kind of films or any film, any kind of storytelling narrative medium right now um, is a way for helping us discern between uh, content and meaning. Right. So so there may be a, a decapitation, <laughs> um, but it, it's not like decapitation equals bad. Um, it's the question is, well, what's the context? What's the narrative context? Why did that happen? What what's going on? It was was it gratuitous or not? Did it did it help tell a sincere story that reflects the human condition? Um, there were, let's say, decapitations in 
the world. <laughs> uh, if you're telling a story about that, to avoid it is actually to tell a dishonest story. And so um, part of, as, as we think through, what does it mean to in, engage these films or any film? Um, that's one of the uh, things that we can practice is how do we come to a place where we go, um, I may not approve of this content. Um, however, the larger meaning of the story is something that could be helpful, um, could be theologically rich. And so for me, I, I'll say, um, both for my own personal practice and then in my teaching and writing, um, there's kind of two, well, there's multiple approaches, but two ways you go about this. One is to say art of any kind, especially great art, um, art that really is tapping into the sort of universal human longings that we all have. Um, can really be spiritually enriching um, for anyone, but specifically for the Christian. And so uh, you can go into a film asking the question of how might this film shed new light or crack open my faith uh, in ways that might otherwise not be possible. Um, and that's really just kind of like a, a personal or communal, like spiritual uh, experience. The other side is, is the missional uh, question. And that is, movies, uh, and depending upon which movie, this this isn't always the case, but film, movies, media are the stories that are shaping the imaginations of contemporary persons, just full stop. Um, 50, 75, 100 years ago, let's say in the North American uh, context, um, we had a, sh a shared narrative that was probably the Bible, right? Like you could say, what's something that everybody knows on the whole, do they know about Moses or Jesus or whatever? And it's, you know, that doesn't mean everyone was were Christians, but they knew this sort of common text. That's not the case anymore. Um, instead, the, the common narratives that we all share are films. Um, a stat that I always share uh, is, uh, I think just it's mind blowing, but Finding Nemo, um, I believe came out in 2006 or seven. It, this is pre-streaming services, anything like that. But Finding Nemo, in the first year of its release, 60% of the American population had seen that movie. That's not just kids. That's all people in America. What other text is there? What other uh, art form or artifact uh, book or anything can we name that 60% of the United States population has seen? So if you are a person that cares at all about engaging in conversations with people that aren't a part of your community um, and you want some place to start, and you want to say, like, how can I gain some insight into the way that people imagine the world, the way that they uh, shape their sort of uh, understanding of each other? Film is just a low-hanging fruit uh, that we can go to and go, hey, this, this has sort of captured the zeitgeist of right now. And that gives me insight into my fellow human being and possibly a bridge to engage in meaningful conversations with them. So, um, oh, so it's funny you bring up Plugged In. Uh, this gets to the content thing. Because um, I've long loved film. And it may be because I was raised in a context where, it, you know, similar to what you're describing, it was treated with extreme skepticism and suspicion, right? <laughs> um, at best, it could be mindlessly entertaining, but at worst, you know, it's, it's dragging you into the pits of hell, um, usually by, you know, showing some form of nudity or something. That was, you know, that was definitely the, the worst offender. Interestingly, violence was less a big deal, right? Like gratuitous violence, meh. Um, but, you know, you show a nipple and, you know, all bets are off. Well, 
um, I think I was 16 or 17, probably 17, uh, maybe like a senior in high school. And, you know, I'd, I'd been showing some signs of independence. My parents were letting me kind of, you know, uh, be go beyond the nest, if you will. And so they're great parents, love them to death. Uh, but <laughs> but they were not uh, uh, fans of uh, contemporary film. And so I remember going to see, I don't even know what movie it was, some movie in the theaters, um, came home late that Friday night, let's say, and then it's Saturday morning. Um, and I'm, I'm there, I kind of come up to the kitchen and my mom's like, Oh, what'd you do? And I go, Oh, last night. And I said, Oh, we, me and some friends went and saw X movie, whatever it was. And she's like, really? And so she goes to uh, the plugged in. It may not have been exactly plugged in. It was one of those books, just like that, the content stuff. Um, and she, she opens it up and she's like, Oh, and she's looking at all the things, right. You know, language, nudity, violence. And she's like, cutter, um, here's what's in this. Do you think, uh, that this is honoring to God, uh, what you're watching. And I look at it and I go, or she's like, are you hardening your heart? This was the language she always used. And I, I looked at it and, and sure enough, there in one of the lines, it's like nudity, you know, uh, one hour, 10 minutes in, and it, you know, just has the like in for nudity. Right. And then you have to go down and look at the description. I'm like, Oh, wow. I don't remember any nudity in this movie. And I'm like, maybe my mom's right. I, I've become calloused and hard-hearted. I, I don't even remember these things. I'm so used to it. And I was like, mom, I honestly do not remember nudity in this film at all. I, and so like I, I started kind of following down where it is. Sure enough, signaled in for nudity. Um, one hour, 13 minutes in, full upper male nudity. <laughs> and I said, what? And so I took it and I literally throw the thing across the room and I said, this is what's wrong with all, you know, all this stuff. Um, and I've never let her live that down. Um, but 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 it is the, as you said, um, the reductive approach. Now, is it helpful for I'm now a parent of young kids. Is something that helpful when I go uh, uh, Raya and the Lost Dragon, the new uh, Disney uh, movie or or Mulan, the live action Mulan. Right. I'm really wanted our, our girls are going to watch. And I'm like, actually, before we see that, let me let me see what's going on. Why is it rated PG-13? Um, so there's actually, there's some helpfulness to that, but to reduce the whole thing to nothing but that sort of uh, content is to essentially uh, treat this piece of art as something that's not art. Um, and, and that's one of the major flaws of that. I remember one time when I was, uh, I had just turned 18 and for my birthday, I was, you know, with a friend and my parents came along and we were going to go see a film and I had other friends who were older who were like, oh, this film, it's really great. Like, you know, there's nothing really bad in it at all. It, it's, it's fine. It's just, it's a, fun, it's a comedy. It's fun. You know, so I, was, I told my parents, I really want to go see it. Birthday, you know, and I was like, oh, I think it's rated, like, oh, it's kind of rated R. Like, but, you know, these people who are a bit older, I respect them. They, they said it's fine. And so we went to this film and we saw the other guys Oh, and <laughs> <laughs> Will, Will Ferrell, Mark Wahlberg, hilarious, but my parents walked out halfway through. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, well, a, a kind of complimentary story to that. Um, you know, I gave my parents a hard time of all that. But once we were going to do a family movie night and I got to pick, you know, at Blockbuster and I had seen, I think, um, Airplane 2 on like TBS. Right. So like it's highly edited, you know, of content, whatever. And so we're in Blockbuster. I'm like, oh, I just saw Airplane 2. It was really funny. Here's Airplane 1. I've never seen it. And I'm like, mom, dad, would, could we watch this? And, and they're like, oh, I don't know. And I'm, look, I'm like, look, it's rated PG. 
So I, I don't think there's anything in it. And it sure it was rated PG. Well, back then the ratings were right. There were only basically two ratings. It was like PG and X basically were, were it in 1979. And so we put it on and sure enough, in like the first five minutes of that, they have this bit where everyone's walking through the, the scanners and all the women, it just shows them topless. And so it was like topless woman after topless woman coming in. I'm like, ah, trying to like find, scramble for the remote to turn it off. So it, you know, sometimes <laughs> uh, it, it, it bites you, but, uh, but yeah, that, that, that's a good one. Other, the other guys, that is not a family friendly flick right there. Yeah. So as we were talking about the Oscar uh, best picture nominations, kind of maybe a quick speed round to uh, get our kind of switch conversation a bit. Um, so I'm just going to ask you three questions and just give us the first film that comes to mind. And hopefully we can, this can get our conversation going. First of all, uh, which film surprised you? Uh, Mank. All right. Mank is the film that surprised you. Okay. Uh, which film did you like, but you don't think it'll win? Uh, uh, Minari. All right. Okay. And then third, uh, which film do you hope doesn't win? Oh, that's a tough one because I don't want to wish ill on anyone. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, well, oh man, that's, that is hard. Uh, what's, what's the la la land of this Oscar nomination? Well, uh, maybe, <sighs> Maybe I can say Nomadland. Um, but I don't actually hope it doesn't win. I just, uh, I, it, it, I, you'll be bummed. I don't know. It. I don't know what to make of it. I don't know what to make of it. So, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, surely it's the front runner. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least that's, that's the scuttlebutt. What uh, surprised you about Mank? And so I know that was speed round, but we've got to at least kind of go there. And I have this theory. Uh, it's probably not a theory. It's probably just true. Uh, that Hollywood really likes itself um, <laughs> and it likes to, to see stories about itself. And it often, the, the Oscar best picture nominees are just riddled with stories about Hollywood or, you know, right. um, you know, the artist, uh, right. But that was the, 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 the black and white film from, or the silent film, quote unquote, um, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood from last year, you know, like you get all these things where it's a kind of, either a romanticization of Hollywood or uh, a look into it. And so I was, I was skeptical, I think, of Hank going in, going like, well, this is just another example from what I know of what it's about, just another example of Hollywood being in love with itself and right. <laughs> exploring right. Citizen Kane, you know, so forth and so on. Um, but darn it, if I didn't really like it, <laughs> like it, I walked away, like, yeah. I think uh, of all of the, the best pictures, enjoying it um, the most. Uh, just as a film, right? And as a, as a story. And um, so that's why I think it surprised me because I went in expecting one thing and it actually kind of won me over. Uh, uh, Minari, I really enjoyed too, but I expected and anticipated that I would in part because I know the filmmakers, um, we have a relationship with them. And so I'm rooting for it. And so it's different. I enjoyed both of those, but, uh, but, but Mank really did surprise me uh, in that way. And it also, uh, I learned some stuff too. Um, about the backstory. I haven't looked into how accurate or how even how much we know exactly. Um, but uh, I was, I, I really enjoyed that. Now I got to go back and of course watch Citizen Kane again. Um, and I haven't been able to do that since we watched the show. So that's, that's the main reason why it surprised me. You mentioned uh, The Artist as a movie that of Hollywood loving Hollywood and um, it won Best Picture. And 
it doesn't really hold up. I remember seeing it again recently and thinking, wow, this wasn't that great of a film, but you know, it's just an example of Hollywood loving Hollywood. I think that uh, if Mank was out maybe 10 years ago, I mean, it would, it would be sort of a shoe in for a best mm-hmm. picture. It's just the kind of film that, that wins, wins an Oscar, but I just think we're in a different time. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you, what do you yeah. all make of that? Because um, I do think, of all all of the the, the uh, movies that are up this year, obviously they are in a very unique context. <laughs> right, so right. it'd be interesting for us to think through like which ones would have been nominated at any time and which ones are have have been given this because of the fact that everyone has been in a pandemic <laughs> uh, yeah. watching these at home alone. And I just I've been thinking through that a lot of what's the uniqueness of this year in particular in terms of the best picture nominees. Yeah, when I think about the films of this year and think about how suited they are for our present moment, I think about Trial of Chicago 7 and Judas and the Black Messiah and how well those films fit into our current racial reckoning. When I think about Promising a Woman, I think about, of course, the Me Too movement. Um, but I, I really feel like Nomadland is sort of particularly suited to uh, the time of COVID, right? I feel like the the displacement uh, that Frances McDormand's character feels is really sort of uh, akin to a lot of the disorientation that a lot of us feel during COVID. You know, there's kind of this dystopian quality to Nomadland, you know, due in part to this kind of Amazonification of all things. And I think that's also something that we can resonate with quite well. I was also thinking um, with Minari and uh, there's another one. That, maybe it's Nomadland as well. Oh, uh, I'm, totally forgot. Sound of uh, Metal. That they're really like quiet movies um, sure. and they're, and they're not, they're not assuming uh, much. Uh, they, they, I, and, and I, I wonder, especially with Minari, I, I go, I think two things had to happen for it to be up. One um, parasite uh, happens. And so that opens mm-hmm. a certain possibility that didn't exist before, but then two, just um, the, the, it's so, um, intimate and uh small if you will in the best sense of the term um that i i just wonder if you know if it's the normal slate of films and um uh that (laughs) that aren't unassuming uh that if that would get on because it's such a to me i'm looking at it and i'm going this is a blatantly christian movie um and Mm. explicitly so and it's getting, I mean, like people are saying it's, it should be nominated, you know, uh, it's an honor to be nominated. Um, and that's part of why I want, want it to win. And I just wonder if any other year would it have gotten the kind of uh, affirmation that it's getting. Um, and that's the one that I, and again, it may be because I'm, I'm connected to it differently than the others. Um, but that is the other surprising one to me uh, that it's even in consideration, although I love it. Yeah, uh, Chris and Grace on, on this podcast as well. We actually all watched uh, Minari together, but, but we we watched it right after um, the Atlanta shootings, right after we recorded mm. the podcast on the Atlanta shootings. Um, and so I, I feel like it was that yeah. hit differently watching mm-hmm. that film after mm-hmm. that, after those events. I, I thought it was really, uh, I thought I didn't know much about the film. So I didn't, I knew it wasn't going to be like Parasite, Mm-hmm. But I thought it would be a bit more, not action, but like there'd be a bit more to it. Yeah. And it was very, it was quiet and it was, yeah. it was peaceful and it was feel good. It made me miss my grandma. 
my grandma's not Korean, but I maybe miss her anyways. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed the film, even though I have, I feel like it left, it left, yeah. it left with a cliffhanger that wasn't a cliffhanger. It was yeah. resolved, but it felt peaceful, but there was a future. Yeah. There's, it's, it's like, it's sincere without being sentimental uh, in, in that way. Like yes. it, it, it was believable. I mean, like, and you go, wait, and that's the kind of stuff that usually doesn't get nominated for best picture. Right. Um, it's usually the nomad lands, which um, I, I had sort of like the inverse experience of that one to what you're describing with Minari is that I, I think it's exactly the, what you're describing um, in terms of the zeitgeist. Um, it feels very Amazon taking over the world. We're sort of displaced and, and, and wandering as, as you know, uh, homeless, but I, I want to say where it left the viewer in terms of her character just made me very sad. I, I, it, it seemed almost a sort of a kind of despairing nihilism. I wonder if you guys can help me reclaim it. I don't want it to be that, but it seemed like there was a, in, in that film, you've got a, 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 a group of people that are committed to a way of life that's sort of doing the kind of countercultural um, rejection of capitalism and all of the trappings of that. And these, this is a community, right, that, that wants to live in community with others, that opens up and, and demonstrates hospitality to her. Um, her own family does. And at the same time, you know, there's that, that horrible scene of them talking about real estate, you know, and like, that's terrible. But her sister, you know, uh, invites her in. And, and I couldn't help but think that um, her decision to be sort of disconnected from the land and from others was really a reflection of the trauma that she encountered um, by losing her community, her family, her house, her husband, all that stuff. It, it wasn't so much a, a re, an ideological rejection of the Ama, Amazonification of life, right? And so by the end, she goes through and sees these other options and kind of rejects them all. And then she's back in the place that she lost. And so it's like that, her desire to have a home and to not be a nomad haunts everything that she does. And by the time we get to the back, I don't, I don't know what the resolution is. And it seems like it's a non-resolution in that same way they're describing with Minari, but it, it left me like just despairing. Um, and maybe that was the whole point. Uh, that could be the whole point of the filmmaker, but that's what I left that movie with. Yeah, that's interesting. I, th I think I uh, kind of had a, a much more hopeful interpretation of Nomadland. You know, there's something kind of uh, akin to the Odyssey, where there's kind of the story about returning home. Of course, she's returning to, you know, something more of a skeleton, right? It's a house. It's not really her home. And one of the things that I, I think is really important about that scene is that earlier on, you know, she talked about how there was this wonderful expanse behind her home. And it's kind of this generative idea of how expansive the space was. And I kind of I kind of had this sense that when she drives beyond it at the end of the film, I, I got this idea that she was moving on, that she had returned home, but then but but then she moved on from that, uh, given that it was no longer her home. And so I, I guess maybe I'm just being a little bit too optimistic, but that's kind of how I understood it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some of this might um a segue into the 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 thematic discussion yeah. that we wanted to have but i mean it's a great place to bring it up and it's just this idea of closure 
and justice, if you will, in it, that weaves through a lot of these movies. Mm-hmm. So Nomadland, I'm with Cutter here. I don't even know if it's a quote more than it is common wisdom, but the sentence that kept running through my head as I watched Nomadland is, uh, the world leaves you before you leave the world. Hmm. Um, whether or not you think that's true or not, I thought that that was very true hmm. of Frances McCormick's character, yeah. that um, she had she had a world that she lost and she was not going to re-engage the world, you know, whether it's with her sister who clearly loves her or this other relationship from, you know, with the guy in sneakers that I like a lot. I can't remember his name. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but that, you know, and, you know, what, what was powerful to me with Francis McDermott's character is that I, I know this person in different part, you know, different mm-hmm. aspects of my life. Yeah. Um, not just folks in the homeless community, um, but uh, folks who, who, um, who I do know and I've had relationships with this in, in my past. And no matter what I or a group of folks or the churches around would try to do to maybe help these people get back on their feet, they just, they just won't accept mm-hmm. it. They, they, and they, you know, they, they prefer to be, you know, the, the movie uses the term wandering. A movie like this actually gives me categories to help understand, you know, that maybe there's just there's this sort of wall that you're not going to break through. Her character seems like a wall, like no matter what advice you give, it just kind of she just kind of has the same blank expression of thanks for saying that. And um, I I do wonder, um, they don't bring it up if if I'm recalling right. It doesn't they don't address it directly. But there is. You're describing. I wondered too if if there are some like mental health things going on. You don't you don't want to like project that on and 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 say it if it's not clear. But um, just some of her expressions, some of the way she responded to things, um, and I and you know a number of people, uh, both direct and indirect, uh, who have like family members who have seemingly chosen homelessness or wandering, um, also struggle with some mental health issues that that make it very difficult to engage. And so I. That's another where I go. It's very timely and powerful because all of that is in play. And even if it's not, you know, you don't have some diagnosable, let's say, schizophrenia or something to suffer the losses she suffered, obviously would have um, have traumatized you in certain ways that would incapacitate you, I think. Um, And maybe that's one of the uh, the law or the why I was so sad, uh, maybe what you're describing, too, because I go. I don't know as an individual, as a family, as a member of a religious uh, community, I don't know what resources we have our, at our disposal to reclaim those people back into community, mm. to, to help them. And it seems that our sort of social safety net continues to fray in ways that um, I think will only give rise to more of, of this kind of story. So connecting that theme with some of the other films that um, are up for are for up for best picture, um, you know, one that immediately comes to mind is Promising Young Woman. Yeah, where you have Carrie Mulligan's uh-huh. character Cassie. You know, there's constant moments where both me as a viewer and characters in the movie are saying, "You've got to move on. Like you've got you've got to not be so obsessed with." In her case, with revenge this idea of avenging um, a, a very unjust and traumatic death of her friend. Um, and you get the sense for her that there's just no coming, there's no, there's no coming back from that trauma. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. in her character, um, I, you know, 
it de it definitely explores this idea of not just justice but the possibility of closure. And I think that in some ways that movie is just as bleak or maybe <laughs> ambiguously hopeful um, about the possibility of, of, you know, the horizon. And I mean, it's important because of, you know, as Christians, we have a horizon of justice and um, we have a way of looking at the world that, that tries to put um, these things in, in, in the context of a larger way of looking at, uh, of, of the righting of wrongs and the possibility of closure. Um, I think Nomadland, Promising Young Women are examples that sort of, sort of explore the malaise of that kind of, you know, uh, the possibility of that kind of closure. Whereas the other, other side of that are movies like Minati that we talked about. Um, Sound of Metal, too, is this idea of, you know, experiencing a, a very keen and powerful loss and exploring what acceptance and closure might mean. Um, in response to that. I'm sure that there's a lot of other examples, but thematically, these, this is one of the big ones that I'm seeing. Yeah, I think to each one, there's some form of, of injustice. I, I'm trying to think through with uh, Sound of Metal, if that's the same thing, but there, there are inequities, uh, mm -hmm. maybe. I mean, even in the way that he pursues, um, uh, you know, getting the... Uh, the implants uh, that that he's obviously doesn't have the the finances or resources to do that, so he you know makes certain decisions based on on those. Um, that might be a little bit of a reach, but other but the others I think um, you know you have a whether it's promising young women or uh, Nomadland or 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 Minari or uh, Judas and the Black uh, Messiah. All of these are people that um, are encountering a a system that uh, doesn't treat them equitably. <laughs> mm. um, you know, like the that scene in Promising a Woman that that uh, she goes to the dean, and the dean's like, "Well, well, what? We're just if we take all of the all of the threats seriously, or all of the accusations seriously, what would that do to all these young boys' lives and livelihood?" Right. And, and <laughs> clearly, siding with the with the oppressor and the powerful. And I thought that's like encapsulates. All of those. Uh, then you could go to uh, uh, the the trial of the Chicago Seven, and what's really interesting about and I need to follow up on this a little bit more. I was reading some stuff on the the actual history. What what Sorkin did? He made some changes that I find perplexing. Uh, one is, and I can't remember the character, well, actual person's name, who was the head of the Black Panther Party that was brought in. Fred Hampton. Uh, it's Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton. Yeah. Oh, Fred but apparently, Hampton. he was he was gagged for three consecutive days during that trial. Oh, Bobby Seale. Bobby was Seale. that Bobby Seale? Yeah. Um, the one that was actually on, you know, on in the trial. Yeah. On trial, yeah. Yeah, Bobby um, Seale. And, and I'm like, whoa, that, you know, in the in the narrative, he sort of just, it, it happens quickly, and then they all go, oh, wait, mistrial, and, you know, they've done well. Apparently he was there for three days. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the other guy that ends up punching, he's he's the pacifist uh, who has the son, and he punches the, the bailiff, apparently did not, punch anyone and uh, again i need to follow up so this is this is google searching not researching <laughs> um <laughs> apparently uh one of the uh, officers in the the courtroom uh, uh assaulted his son uh, physically and yet he didn't respond violently so uh, so some of those things are really interesting um we don't have to talk about them but but what they get at is um all of these systems that are set up to privilege certain 
folks at the expense of others in these radical sort of inequities. And you see the fallout from that. Um, and you see it both societally, just in our country right now, period. But then in all these films, again, this is back to the, why do these capture people's imaginations? It's because they're giving voice to some sense in which the game is rigged. Um, and it's rigged to the advantage of uh, very specific groups of people um, and disadvantaging others. And if we now, and this is even back to Hollywood being guilty, you know, the Me Too movement started in Hollywood, um, uh, Oscar so black, <clears throat> you know, there it is guilty of reinforcing a lot of that system. But now you get this shift where you have different voices, different filmmakers telling different stories. Um, and it's no small wonder that they're all kind of running up against um, these these injustices and the traumas that we've inherited um, uh, from them. So you have both the historical side of it and the contemporary one um, telling a very similar story that I find really interesting um, in the way that those connect. I do, about, I, one thing I, I just wanna say about Promising Young Women though, I also think it's a really problematic film. And I actually reached out to um, a couple of friends, both of whom are women of color. And I said, this is very Tarantino-esque um, in terms of a yes. sort of like revenge fantasy. Um, and I go, okay, but what, what's wrong? What's happening here? And I, I couldn't quite figure it out. And then I said, I think there's something about her being a white woman that allows her character to do certain things that, and this gets to your closure uh, point, Chris, that at the end, the, the, the redemption or whatever that she kind of realizes that gives that sort of catharsis to the audience, like, aha, the guy's got it in the end. I was like, well, wait a minute. It's only for a white woman that the police and the sound of police sirens is uh, a victory. Hmm. And also those dudes have been getting off scot-free from people in authority their entire life. What's to make us think that any, it's going to be different now, right? And so I think at the very end, I had this weird uh, question about the racial dynamics of that movie in particular. However, yeah, yeah. being a white male, a white cisgendered male, I don't, I'm like, I, I, I'm very hesitant to then like critique it on those grounds because I also think the film itself is very important in, in what it's doing and, and what it's forcing us to, to look at and stare at. Um, as an audience. So I don't want to be overly uh, critical on that, but that was one uh, sort of like, huh, asterisk at the end. And so uh, it, it, yeah, I, I think we can follow up on that with some others. <laughs> I thought, so I, I really, uh, I unfortunately watched the trailer mm. before I, I, and I rarely do that. I just didn't know anything. I didn't know what it was about. So I wanted to watch the trailer and then I was like, ah, dang it. Kind of ruined a bit of the, of the fun, but I was surprised that the the like kind of the fun part of the reveal that like oh wait she's not she's been learning i thought this was going to be a very different film yeah. and obviously yeah. there's gonna there's there's a lot of tie-ins with with kill bill mm -hmm. uh with tarantino and then kind of the revenge fantasy um there's like a harley quinn kind of uh -huh. you know um homage or something and i thought there was a really good part, uh, Chris, to your, to your point about justice and redemption. I thought there was a really good part where the person that, you know, somewhat saves the day in that film is the lawyer who mm. repents. And there's like a very interesting, you know, it's kind of like a Carrie Mulligan's characters portrayed mm -hmm. like it 
like an angel and she like mm-hmm. forgives him and and the the lawyer like who had represented uh the the bad rapist dude mm-hmm. um earlier you know repents feels guilty remorse and then like is kneeling before her mm-hmm. asking for forgiveness and you're like wow that's mm-hmm. that's great mm-hmm. um and he ends up you know saving the saving the day yeah. getting the guys in trouble but i felt that the ending was problematic in one sense because I mean, she dies, and the mm-hmm. the the the, ra- the the rapist kills her and suffocates her, and it's it's almost like a George Floyd almost yep. instance where it's. I mean, like, that's oh. got to be like a four minute scene or something. Yeah, yeah, um, it's hard to watch. It is. I, it's very hard to watch, and you think the whole time that something good is going to happen, and it doesn't. Yeah, um, and I, you know, so I, I'm of two minds here, right? I mean, like I um do I want. I think there's a very intentional reason that the horror of that violence um, played out at that length because cinema too often goes through violence without like forcing the audience to deal with the actual repercussions of what it's like to suffocate a human to death. Um, And it's just like, oh, quick 10 seconds and then we move on. Oh, they're dead. It's like, well, no, do you realize what it takes to do that? Um, at the same time, uh, I go, we have this character. Um, do we do we need this story? Is that necessary to get the story that that the film was trying to be, right? Um, is that worth the the price, <laughs> if if you will? So I yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say there there's also the other uh Tarantino uh bit where she's going to carve her name. Yes. Yeah, uh, on his skip, just like in *Inglorious Bastards*, where they would oh, yeah. carve the swastika, you know, give you give you something you can't take off, right? Yeah. Um, but I wonder, I wonder if there is a very intentional like part of the film was that that's not how life works. Yeah. Is that re- revenge fantasies are only a fantasy, and that's not how the real world works. Yeah. But the the very ending, I think, as you said, I think that is a, a really good point. Is that the cops show up and you think that's victory, but in reality, it's not. Yeah, that rarely well, is. And for her, I mean, what I think one of the best, uh, what, what I would call Christian ver- re- revenge depictions in cinema, recent cinema is the Cohen's True Grit. Mm. Um, and and you and this is again a a, a female uh, uh, protagonist who has a a justifiable reason to enact vengeance, right? She was wronged. Her perpetrator was wrong and, and no one would, would do it for her. Right. So similar parallel. And, and it becomes clear in that film, the consequences of basically uh, enacting your own vengeance. Uh, Now, someone else had asked me about this, this film or others, like what would be a good, um, if you're troubled by promising young women, which again, I think it's uh, important to watch. Um, I just, again, these are the, the troubling questions with it. Um, but they said, what, what would be like a good revenge movie that that would be more consonant with sort of a Christian approach to this? And I go, I don't think it's possible. That, that, that's, that's the antithesis uh, of the Christian narrative. Um, and that's where I go, um, to both points, like it's good that it, it's good, quote unquote. That's the, not the right language. Um, it's important that she dies in the process of this, um, but I don't think at that level that was like 
what the filmmaker was trying to get at, that this is sort of the consequences, even even like you become a victim of your own seeking of vengeance. I don't think that's yeah. where she was going. Right. Um, and so that's where it just got a little convoluted uh, to me in terms of what what we were trying to do there at the end. Yeah, you also kind of get this idea that she's a martyr for the cause, right? I mean, when we see her lying on the bed after she had died, her arms are sort of spread out in a kind of crucifix posture. And you you almost kind of get this kind of imitatio Christi sort of dynamic to that scene. You know, yeah, yeah. Brandon had mentioned, you know, the, the, the angelic imagery uh, of the film, that she's almost kind of this guardian angel. And I think, you know, this sort of these religious images are kind of working together. She's like, part guardian angel and maybe this kind of like again kind of like martyr like quality to her as well kind of superhero in some senses too yeah. i mean like the, yeah. the you said harley quinn uh just her costume at the end um she she sort of all the time is wearing this kind of facade or or co costume right like an actual costume to go out and perform she, again she she's every woman yeah she's every woman um, and she experiences uh, trauma in her past. And at, at, by day, she's a coffee shop uh, barista. And by night, she's seeking vengeance on those who are acting unjustly. I mean, like, so there's even, yeah, whether it's a Christological thing or a superhero type thing, I think that's definitely in play. So, yeah, I, I, that's why I say I think the filmmaker wants it to be a, a, a more redemptive than maybe it, it ended up being um, in, in my take. Well, it's actually um, to that point, it's like we're, we've already given all the spoilers <laughs> in the movie about what happened. But um, the the original ending of the movie, the way it was written was it ends at the burial and, uh. and there's no there's no like sneaky texts and all of that that comes out at the end. And so mm. it was certainly supposed really? to be. Um, yeah, you can go. You can go look that up. That was that was an original ending of the film. Yeah, that reminds me of the original ending of Get Out, which which I think, of course, is is just much more uh, powerful. Really, I I almost wish the theatrical release would have ended that way. I think it makes its point much more strongly. Oh, uh, wait, of Get Out or of, of Promising Young Woman? Of Get Out, yeah, of Get Out. Having not known about this alternate ending for Promising Young Woman, I mean, I'm I'm curious. I mean, it seems like that would also uh, hammer the point home uh, much more strongly. Kind of like the original ending of get out would have well it would it, it it would and i think that they want you to know that that's how they wanted to end it and of course you know how you know the studios are saying no you're not gonna end it like that. <laughs> it, that i mean do you guys i thought you were gonna say the ending of dodgeball <laughs> <Because> <laughs> the ending of dodgeball was supposed to end with the little jim losing and ben stiller's jim winning and they're like no and the director actually quit over that ending and so but you said get out which is the right which is the right analogy. Not <laughs> I wanted to circle that back to Minati because, you know, losing that crop and, you know, risking everything that they had at the end to see that go in flames, like, you know, you could, you could not recover from that as well. Mm -hmm. Like there is something where mm -hmm. that is like uh, that is sort of an identity crushing moment um, for, for him, uh, for Steven Yoon's character and for that entire family. You know, like it's only two minutes from that moment on where the movie kind of, kind of, you know, reaches it, it hurries to its end, you know, and, and so in some ways, you know, people talk about the ending of Minati as, as, is that ambiguous? Does that go either way? Um, and uh, there's certainly a gesture of quiet acceptance that, um, that we're going to, we're going to try this again and we're going to try it again mm -hmm. as a family. Um, 
the silence of it. So I'm, I'm Korean American. Um, and, um, this movie really hit me in a certain way because I, I, you know, I grew up in suburban Chicago, not Arkansas, but there were so many moments in this movie that reminded me of my childhood, like my grandma watching wrestling, like that's a (laughs) weird thing, but that actually, that, that Mm -hmm. actually happened with my grandma. Um, like certain crazy moments, just, it's amazing to see on film, but, um, the not explaining how things end, you know, you know, they had the big, the husband and wife had this big blow up. Um, but then they're together in the end when they're, um, you know, they're replanting a well, this idea of things being done and not spoken and not discussed. That's very, that's actually very Korean. It might be, (laughs) that might be in other cultures as well. That might translate very well, but that ending seemed to, to me to be very true to my own experience of how things uh, moved on and how things um, progressed as a family. Um, things mm-hmm. weren't really explained. <laughs> they weren't <laughs> talked out, but they were still, they were still experienced together. But um, it's a different response to loss. It's a different response um, to, to trauma or conflict mm-hmm. um, than a movie like Promising Young Woman or, yeah. or Nomadland might be offering. I'm, I'm with you. And I, um, I mean, everyone that is Korean American that I know that watched this describes it similarly to you. Um, and that's why I think the interesting thing about this film is, although it's ostensibly about uh, a first generation immigrant couple that comes and their kids and whatnot, I think it's 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 all filtered through the lens of the young boy who yeah, it's, right. it's his story essentially, or maybe him and his sister. And so it's it's actually not um, a Korean immigrant movie. It's an Asian American movie. Like mm-hmm. it's a, it's a very American movie uh, told from that perspective of what what do you recall about having the grandmother? What you know these sort of things. Um, and so uh, that. But again, that's me as sort of an outsider observing people describe it that way. Um, and then the other side, though, of where I I I then connect with it is um, it's it's. Uh, again, explicit sort of Christian uh, ethos. It's not just because, oh, it's it's has sort of this overlay of Christianity that that makes me want to endorse it over, <laughs> say, Promising Woman or Nomadland. But it is the, um, I guess, the the prescription or the hope uh, that it that it offers or kind of opens up. And again, it's not a um, it's not like some radical thing. It's a we're going to go dig the well again. Right. It's a it's a um, I I watched this documentary a couple years ago called Biggest Little Farm, and it's actually about um, some folks that started a a sustainable farm. And and it's actually a regenerative farm. It's not just sustainable. It's regenerative uh, out just north of L.A. here um, in this land that was just totally barren and they kind of revived it. Um, But I went out on on to their farm and visited it as part of like the PR for the movie and and talked to the to uh, the farmer's husband and wife. Uh, he's actually a documentary filmmaker. She's like a gourmet chef. So they're like, you know, uh, living off the land and all this stuff, you know, just uh, very sort of Wendell Berry-ish. Um, but it was interesting because I I had my daughter um, ask like, hey, give me a couple of questions because she's interested in farming to ask the farmer. So I asked him, uh, you know, how do you tell the difference between a weed and a plant? Um, I'm like, oh, good question. I'll ask that. So I asked it. And so uh, one of them, either uh, I think John and Molly were their names, said, oh, well, there really is no such thing as a weed. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And he, 
And he's like, well, a weed's just a plant that's growing in a place uh, that the farmer doesn't want it to grow. Um, and it's a name we give to those things. Uh, but what a, what a weed is, is actually an invitation to a deeper form of relationality with the land. It's an indicator that something is amiss. And, and I'm like, oh, that's a... <laughs> That's that's mind blowing, right? As a non-farmer, I'm like, this is crazy. And that's what I see in Minari of going the sort of transgressive or countercultural uh, shift that that makes is um, the, the farm burns down. All of your hopes and dreams of making it the American dream have potentially been shattered. What do you do? You reimagine your relationship to the land. Um, and that is a deeply Christian thing. Right, and to name it as such uh, is is I just thought a really beautiful thing, even though it's still it's not like closed and tight, and nice little bow. Um, and I think that's where uh, Nomadland in particular kind of left me going like, "Ooh, I wish there was something like that that I could put hang on." And again, but if the filmmaker wanted me to walk away, it was successful. <laughs> yeah, yep. on the Nomadland. One of the themes I, that I, or one of the interesting things that I saw between this Oscar season and last one is last one films were all over the place. You had like Ford versus Ferrari and then oh, once yeah. upon a time in Hollywood in 19 yeah. there were so many films. And when you watched uh parasite, it was so obviously clear why it won because it, it was just an amazing film. Yeah. And even though there was a ton of other great films, it was so clear this Oscar season. It felt like, Besides Mank, because that was the film that I hope doesn't win. Um, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't really like it that much. But besides that one, every film felt like it was touching on the same kind of theme uh, of kind of this insider outsider or, mm-hmm. the, or, or showcasing an uh, alternative community. So it's very clear, obviously, in Nomadland, but um, in The Sound of Metal, uh, which is the film that most surprised me because I thought it was going to be all about metal music and it turned <laughs> to be about uh, the deaf community and mm-hmm. deaf and like uh, people who struggle with addictions mm-hmm. talking and hanging out with deaf people and like mm-hmm. work. It was like that. I've never known about that com- community. You also get the father, which was, uh, you know, an experience of growing old and struggling to exist and, 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 and struggle with memory. You know, you have that kind of perspective. You also have, uh, you know, Judas and the Black Messiah, obviously, uh, with, you know, the, the story of Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers and just a different, you know, alternate community. And, and I, I, I was just wondering what you thought about that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're onto something. Um, it's it just descriptively true, <laughs> right, that, that, that you've got these uh, various different uh, communities, like specific communities, identifiable communities, um, and then sort of um introducing the you know the mass audience to those and um it's to me a a really great opportunity or, or it demonstrates to me one of the uh, great opportunities that film and maybe this is going back to the very one of the very first question like why film why would why would christians engage film and 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 this would go to any sort of like great storytelling is that um at their best uh, i think art traffics in empathy and that that both requires the piece of art to generate some kind of emotional response from the viewer, 
but then also if it does its job, it, it draws you into sort of an empathetic resonance with whomever is on the screen. Um, and when that whomever is on the screen is a, a person from a, a, a community that maybe you just have never interacted with, have no familiarity with, um, may in some cases be a community that you think you know, and you actually have some sort of antipathy toward, right? Um, it, it humanizes people in ways that, that leave you with no other choice really, but to empathize. Um, I have, I don't know where he got it. I think it's even like a pastor of mine or something that uh, said, and I, the turn of phrase surprised me because I thought it was going to go somewhere, but maybe this is a famous saying, but um, if, if you knew everything about anyone, you know, everything that ever happened to any other person in this world, you would have no other choice but to love them. And, and what film does is go, okay, you think you know, you know, some, yeah, I, I don't know, a, a extreme story of someone that you just have othered, right? Totally othered and uh, sort of stereotyped them as, you know, all of these kind of people equal bad, right? Um, well, all of those people have stories of how they got there, right? Um, even a a venge seeking or woman that goes on the prowl at night to like seek vengeance for something like that. She has a story that humanizes her, whatever you make of her pursuit of justice um, and draws you into that sort of uh, a kind of empathetic uh, posture. And then from there, the question is, and this is always my then question mark with film. Okay. Now having gone through this um, <laughs> oh, for the philosophers in the world, we can talk about uh, Ricoeur's uh, uh, sort of three acts of the, of the narrative after you've gone through this sort of the world that you've inhabited that the story gives us, it sort of spits you out into this world in front of the text um, or the movie in this case. And what I love about Ricoeur is he says um, the appropriated world in front of the text, it gives you the option to inhabit that world mm. and you can choose otherwise. Right. So for the Christian, any film goer, but specifically for those who are people of faith, it's a missed opportunity. If we walk through that, that process of empathy, walk out the other side and just go, all right, <laughs> I've paid my empathy dues. Um, I know what it's like to, to grow up uh, the, you know, the son of Korean immigrants. Good job. If it doesn't, if it doesn't prompt you to action, then I still think the art is kind of just stillborn, right? It, it just sits mm. there. And so that's, in my mind, there's a kind of ethic of, of, of viewership, uh, an ethic of reception that we can bring to these to go when it, when it, when we see all these Oscar films doing this, now, what's my response? Now, now, what is my calling to these other communities um, that I perhaps didn't know before I walked into the cinema? Yeah, that's a great point. And um, just to follow up, two films in particular that that I think really heighten this idea of subjective empathy is one, The Father, mm -hmm. and, and two, The Sound of Metal. Mm -hmm. uh, Sound of Metal first, when with just the the scene where his ears start to ring and you st he starts it, that scene is frightening. Like honestly, like you experience what that might be like if you were in his situation and the the voice would start to that was honestly amazing. And it's a it's a real testament to what film maybe only film uniquely can do is give you not just a sense of empathy but really a you know to be in their shoes. Um, that was the reason why the father. Uh, as a film was so hard to watch. It was hmm. just so incredibly disorienting. Um, and even the storytelling itself never let you feel the ground beneath your feet. Hmm. 
precisely because they're letting you sort of experience the world through the eyes of one's uh, sense of self, one's sense of memory is starting to, to fall by the wayside and um, just truly powerful examples of what, what film can do. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed in, in the father, but uh you know, the lamps keep switching. The yeah, chair, it's crazy. Every, it just, it just very quick is just, oh, there's a couch. And then the next scene, there's like, there's not a couch and there's chairs. And did I just, and, and you, you, you question your own viewing. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and I love that when the, when the art, uh, you know, imitates life, you know, and uh, same thing with Sound of Metal is there, there is just that, I think the most heartbreaking part of that film was, was when, you know, he gets all the money, he gets the surgery, you know, it's very quiet in that part of the film, but then they turn it on and, and it just is like, it's not this rubbish. Oh yeah. And it's, and obvious. And yeah. And it's just like, man, you know, interesting historical point that I've always found fascinating. Um, some of my early research was on, uh, on music and film. Um, but then also uh, sound design. And so I'm always really interested in sound design. And that's the strength of, of Sound of Metal, yeah. which you're both describing. And um, it actually wasn't until uh, Dolby Digital was created, this technology, the sound technology, that you could actually bring the register down to absolute zero. There was always in sort of analog sound, there's always some sort of white noise. And so that last scene that's that's profound right this moment yeah. uh i mean they literally say in the movie the kingdom of god right is is here it is right right and it's it's absolute silence it's and and you as a viewer um who hasn't inhabited an absolute silent reality um it actually is only made possible by the technology of the sound of film hmm. um that we can get to that point so uh even that i find really interesting of how uh sort of technological advance helps the storytelling helps that that empathy helps us inhabit those spaces, um, whether it's the sort of visual disorientation or all those sound cues, um, just really. And I, I think that's probably why um, Sound of Metal, again, a, a, a very small film about a very particular uh, character that is up for best picture. Yeah. And back to, you know, John's uh, kind of original point about uh, content, you know, reducing films to just content and, you know, what is about, you know, how many cuss words are in there, I think really fails to capture that how a film is, is constructed, how a film, how a story is told is part of the, you know, the magic of movies is that, you know, things like The Father, like, how do you, how do you articulate to someone, oh yeah, but every scene, the, the lamp is different. <laughs> and that's going to freak you out. Mm-hmm. How, you can't do that in a book. You can't do that in other pieces mm-hmm. of art, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that is what is so great about film is that you're able to capture, you're able to do homages, to set up these expectations, you know, like we talked about in Promising Young Woman or, you know, even the way that the trial of the Chicago 7 is told is that, you know, I, I'd expect if you are of a certain generation, you obviously have preconceived notions about who the bad guys are in that trial and who the good guys are. Uh, and, you know, and so, but one of the things that's interesting is that empathy that, uh, what'd you call the subjective empathy? So is it Chris? Yeah. I mean, whatever way of just being in that person's shoes, like literally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's that moment when uh, Sasha Barra Cohen's character realizes that no you were you missed out the word you always miss out you know you yeah. you, you didn't yeah. say our right. you meant to say it was our blood in the streets not the not the the cop's blood 
and that yeah. is like he understands and that's like a turning point in the film and so sure sure but you don't but if you just started out with that you know that that wouldn't have made the film that wouldn't have captured the drama of the film yeah all right so uh the the second to last question that we've got here is uh is there a film that you like that didn't 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 make the nominees list is there a picture that you would add to best picture cutter yeah that is a good question i it's such a um a kind of odd <laughs> year um yeah. you know i uh there i feel like there's some maybe some docs uh or I, I i'm not sure if there's anything that rises to the level where i'd go it's a it's a clear better choice sure than than what we've got here um I will say, um, and I think it's actually up for uh, animated film, um, but Wolfwalker is a really interesting, um, Wolfwalkers, I think. Um, and I want to check to see if it's actually up, but I would potentially move it into um, the live action uh, Best Pictures. And it's basically a kind of a, a myth, uh, sort of an Irish folklore kind of a, a myth similar to, to Song of the Sea. I don't know if anyone saw that, um, mm. but it's a hand-drawn animation um, and watched it with my kids. Uh, and it was, you know, both frightening in the way that a, a, a myth should be, but uh, also really compelling. So wow. I tend to like uh, animated films, uh, but uh, that I think would be one that I would say would be a worthy nomination, even though, as we all know, no animated film has ever won Best Picture. So uh, unlikely choice for the top. Mm. Um, Curious, did you, uh, Tenet wasn't going to make the best picture list, but did you see it and did you like it? I did. I did. It is the only movie I saw in a theater this year. Oh, is that right? Um, Yeah. So I am an unabashed and uncritical endorser of all things Christopher Nolan. So (laughs) I I start with, it's going, it's amazing. And then maybe I'll hear arguments otherwise. Um, It, I need to see it again, uh, number one. So I've only seen it the once. uh, And I I loved all sorts of things about it. Um, and, and I didn't have the same audio problems that a lot of others said that they did. So I don't know if they fixed it. Like there was a lot of people talking about how the, the dialogue was all garbled. I thought that was on purpose. I, I, I mean, like maybe I'm hearing, maybe I'm reading different sources, but I thought that that was intentional that, um, that it was created like that. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, um, just the way he mixes stuff, uh, it, it leans that direction, but I didn't, it wasn't like a problem for me in, in yeah. watching it. Um, but I just thought it's it's creative, it's interesting, it's it's everything that you want in a going to the movie theater on a 90-foot big screen is, um, including the sound. Uh, so for all of those things, I give it a plus. But again, I I think, I mean, to your point about film form, I mean, like Memento gives you that sense of of short-term memory loss. That yes, you, yes. Like how else do you feel that, right? That sort of dissonance. So um, anyway, so yeah, I, I loved it. I, I would have named that as the uh, uh, best picture, but I actually don't think, I don't think it's a classic sort of best picture award category. I don't think so either, but you know, I've seen it, I've seen it several times now. Oh, um, nice. Does I it, like it, it. Hold up on repeat viewings. It gets better. In oh, my good, mind, good. it gets better the more that I see it. And I mean, I think it, it needs the, just the way that it's told, it needs to be watched twice. And it's, it's one yeah. of those things where you keep certain things in mind and yeah. Just well, maybe that's the, what we should do for the next podcast. We all go watch it at least three more times and then break it down. <laughs> I just love that. I, you know that somebody in R&D or whatever was like, 
I feel like this is really complicated. And he's like, would it really, you know, Christopher mm-hmm. Nolan's like, would it help if I put colors on it? And they're like, mm-hmm. yes, that would be great. <laughs> Red and blue, that'd be so helpful. <laughs> well, it is the interesting thing about a, a visual storytelling of the kind of things you have to, you have to think through. I mean, even back to um, Inception, right? Like the different level, to make sure it cohered that we could track with stuff, very clearly different lands. So you have a very, like the the the, the white, the white out sort of snow area is very different than the other levels. Otherwise you'd get lost. And so you have to think through visually, how are you tracking? Um, and I think that's visually he's, uh, he's top flight. And, and then of course, um, now some people accuse him of being a, he lacking heart, like he doesn't generate the kind of empathy in the characters that uh, others do. But I just find it so stimulating that they're they're super fun to watch. My, uh, you know, shameless plug, the uh, concluding chapter of uh, one, of, I think my most recent book, technically uh, called Deep Focus. I co-authored it with a couple of colleagues. Um, so I wrote the chapter on Christopher Nolan and it's a breakdown of all of his films. Huh. Um, and I basically, this connects to our, our larger conversation today. Um, I categorize him as a, a post-traumatic filmmaker. Um, and, and I think all of his films, and it continues to be this way, are about characters who basically are responding to trauma, either their own personal or societal. Uh, and he's sort of uh, mapping out these different responses to what happens when you are trying to grapple with those in <laughs> most of the time in not really life-giving ways. Um, but uh, that's part of why I find him so compelling. Yeah, when you when you think across Christopher Nolan's films, you can you can definitely see that. But but to the point that uh, his films lack heart, I think that's kind of an interesting comment because I find Interstellar to be full of uh, quite a bit of heart. I I mean, I had a, a very profound uh, emotional experience watching that film. Actually, well, h- how about as a as a final question, uh, what do you think is the best picture of twenty twenty one? Again, this is I'm biased, but uh, I would like to see uh, Minari win for the heart question, for the the oddity of this year reason. For, I mean, for all of those things, um, I think it's a mm, it is a toss up between. I'm, I'm pretty sure Nomadland is going to win. I, I would I would be surprised if it didn't. Um, for all the reasons we've named, um, it definitely captures something about the current moment. Um, incredible, I mean, beautiful cinematography, mm-hmm. uh, really, really engaging, great acting. Um, I mean, just all around really, really well done. Um, so it's, it's going to be hard for someone to beat that one, I think. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Calloway. It's been a blast to be able to nerd out about film for a bit and think, uh, think about these Best Picture nominees at a, at a deep level and, and, and make some connections uh, across them as, as well. So it's just been a blast. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks. It was uh, super fun and uh, glad to be on.